0: You're listening to Birthing and Justice, a series of conversations about birth, racism, and cultural safety. I'm Ruth D'Souza. I'm speaking to you from the unceded sovereign lands of the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nations. I pay my respects to their elders and to any Indigenous people listening. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today's guest is philosopher Helen Ngo. Helen's work involves examining experiences of race, gender and consciousness. So in this episode, we're going to talk about embodiment and bilingual and bicultural parenting. Before we begin, a quick note that some parts of this conversation may be distressing for some listeners. All right, let's get into it. Great to have you here, Helen. And I'm wondering if you can tell me why you care about birthing. Thanks thanks very much for,
1: for having me on your show, which is, which is just a truly wonderful show, I have to say. Um, so I, I care about birthing <laughs> because um, it can be a really profound and transformative experience. Um, and one way we tend to think of the new relationships and the new roles that come from the birth of a child. But I think at the same time, um, it also very much presents an opportunity for us to revisit our past experiences, our past relationships, and to see them to see them differently, and to reclaim parts of ourselves or experiences, our identity,
0: and to be able to see them through a fresh lens. I'm really excited and interested in in the idea of transformation that you've just um, alerted us to, but there's also something in there about reclamation and. Uh, it kind of brings me to my second question around language And you've written in a piece that you wrote for The Conversation About language being much more than just a, ma- a way of communicating or transactional you, you said we dwell in language Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So, I guess by way of background, um I work in philosophy and I draw from, for that piece that you mentioned, I, I draw from some philosophers who look at the, the role and nature of language. And um, I guess, as you say, you know, in our ordinary sort of going every day going about the world, we tend to think of language as a tool that we use for communication and for transaction, but it really can be a lot more than that. Um, and... Language is really a way that we sort of open ourselves up to the world or it's, some philosophers have said that language is like a house. We sort of dwell in language and it's through language that we are able to express ourselves or it's through language that we're able to create a world. So I think there can be a very profound relationship to language that goes beyond that, that sense of communication um, that's bound up very much with our cultural identity, if you like.
0: Yeah, I, I was just thinking as you're saying that about how uh in in my first few years of being a human, I was fluently trilingual. So I spoke Swahili, Maragoli and English. And how I've lost those languages, but um, how central they've been to my identity, and how important they've been uh, as being part of a family that's multilingual, you know. Yeah. And um, I'm really very interested in why bilingual parenting is so important to you. And I and I'm talking to you while you're in your third trimester, <laughs> you're very pregnant at the <laughs> moment, and and you've got a you've got a house for a baby yeah. inside yourself as well as uh, writing about the house of language. It's interesting. I think there are some really interesting parallels there to, to think about pregnancy
1: or the, the pregnant body as a kind of first home and language as a home and the maternal language, if we want to use that terminology, as a kind of first home as well. I think there are some really productive parallels there. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a mother to two children um, with one joining the, the crew very soon. Um, and I, I happen to, to parent them bilingually. Um, so I guess a, a very practical reason would be because my parents, um, don't speak English very well. And so I wanted to parent my children in a language, um, that would enable them to have a relationship with their grandparents, um, and with the broader community as well. So that's, I guess, a very practical reason. But I think more than that, um, as is often the case with people who are parenting bilingually because it takes quite a lot of effort. Um, I think there's something about this kind of reclamation that you mentioned. I wanted to impart in them a sense of pride in their, in their cultural heritage and identity in a way that might not necessarily be, um, mirrored to them in the society that we live in. And and even personally, I've come to realise that through parenting them through Cantonese, it's really transformed my own relationship to a language that I felt pretty ambivalent about for most of my life growing up, because as many second generation migrant kids experience when they grow up in a country like Australia, that's very hostile to non-English languages. You pick up quite early that it's something not to be proud of. It's something to be ashamed of. Um, or, you know, it's not cool to be to, to be speaking a different language at home. Why don't you speak English? We're in Australia, etc. So, you learn very quickly from a young age that your bilingualism, your multilingualism is not welcome here. So, I guess part of my parenting bilingually and wanting my children to speak um, the language that I speak at home most often has to do with that. It's about a, a sort of reclaiming of this relationship to a language that was at times a very difficult one.
0: So can you tell me a bit about Her Mother's Tongue, that project you've been involved with?
1: Yeah, so this is a paper I've been writing probably for about four years now, because parenting has mostly gotten in the way of writing about parenting. Um, and I guess it's a paper that explores some of those questions around bilingual parenting and about some of the racialized and gender dimensions in particular about bilingualism, but bilingualism in a very specific context. So we're talking about sort of bilingualism among diasporas. Also to play with this notion of, um, you know, we think of the activity of mothering as something that's very instinctive, that's nurturing and that's natural, but actually takes a lot of work. It takes so much labour and it takes such an infrastructure around it and it's deeply social. And I think the same sorts of things can be said about learning a non-dominant language to learn a language other than English as a home language here. I think there are some parallels that can be drawn there. So trying to bring to light some of the invisible labour that goes on and also the way in which um, we talked earlier about when we think about language as a kind of home, then it made me wonder, well, what does it mean when one doesn't speak one's maternal language very well? What does it mean when your maternal language is not really a home for you? and to to capture a sense of like dwelling in between that a, a lot of people experience and navigate whether linguistically or in other ways and I think playing with the sense of the intergenerational dynamics between that and we tend to think of language uh, I know that a term that is often used in sociology something like language transmission as if language is transmitted from one generation down to another generation and what I have found uh, in personal experience but also in literature is the way it really works both ways it can the experience of parenting bilingually can really open up your linguistic world for the parent in a way that wasn't the case previously and I think there's something really beautiful about that and it, it echoes the you know we have sort of a saying when we say that birth is not just about giving birth to a child, but it is also about giving birth to a mother or giving birth to a parent. And I think there's something like that um, in the experience of bilingual parenting, you're sort of um, giving birth to this new way
0: of being. I love that, Helen. It's it's such a beautiful kind of reclamation and I love that it's so multi-directional. I wonder if you could talk about um, your critique of white privilege uh, and Specifically, you've said that it's sort of a self-absorbed, self-indulgent introspection that has more to do with airing and owning white guilt and white shame than motivating political action. Um, Can you tell us why you've been critiquing the concept of white privilege and um, some other ways of thinking that you're kind of trying to activate? Yeah,
1: so the work on white privilege... um... There's more recent work where I have just been wanting to uh, push against this concept a bit, a concept that gets used quite broadly in anti-racist circles, which I I have to say can be very extraordinarily useful. It can be a very, very useful and important concept. So I don't want to do away with it necessarily, but I just think that sometimes it doesn't go far enough. One of the basic features of a white-dominant society is that white people receive benefits by virtue of their whiteness and those benefits flow to you whether or not you want them to, whether or not you signed up for them. If we start talking about some of those benefits as privileges, it assumes that that might be something that you can refuse um, or you you can name and therefore that sort of solves the problem, whereas that's not the case. Our society is organised in a way that certain benefits flow to white people, regardless of whether or not they want them to. And I think that's where the language or the concept of white privilege can sometimes distract us.
0: So, so let's think about the the flip side of white privilege, which is perhaps thinking about racism. Uh, you know, because they're kind of two sides of the same coin, right? Almost. Can you tell us a bit about the idea of racism as a habit, which you've written about in your book?
1: Yeah, so I, in my book, I was just exploring this idea, as you say, that, uh, of racism as something that's enacted not just through conscious words or thoughts and actions, which is, tends to be how we think about racism um, as an act or a, or a thought, but something that's very deliberate and willed and conscious. But it seemed to me that that wasn't really reflective of how racism is experienced. And starting from the experience of racism, um, you know, oftentimes you talk to First Nations people, or people of colour, and you people get this sense of like, oh, that that just that feels racist, or this, you know, it doesn't feel like it's a welcoming place. There's, there's a sense in which um, there's something happening beneath a kind of like explicit. Level um, or or an explicit layer. And so I was playing with this idea of racism as habitual to get at um, the way in which racism can really become embedded in our bodies in this kind of non conscious way. And what I mean by that is the way we orient ourselves so that we might gravitate towards certain bodies or not towards others. We might be suspicious towards certain bodies or smells or sounds, etc in ways that we're completely at ease. So when I say we're completely at ease, I mean society at large. And in thinking about it in terms of habit, I was really um, playing with the concept of habit and thinking about racism, not as even just habit in the way that we think of, you know, smoking is a habit or biting your nails is a habit, um, something that you do repetitively without thinking about it. But actually how, if you think about smoking, it's not just something that you do repetitively and maybe you you need to or it feels right etc but you actually are in your world the world around you unfolds in a particular way as a smoker um or the world unfolds around you in a particular way as a car driver as opposed to a uh, a cyclist and it seemed to me that that might be a useful way for thinking about racism as the world, you you orient your world in a particular way as someone who is white in a white-dominant society or someone who is racialized and who has to navigate a white-dominant world. So thinking about racism as actually a habituation, a way of inhabiting the world. And actually to circle back on our our, uh, discussion on language, really, as a way of dwelling um, in the world as well.
0: Yeah. So so I'm, I'm kind of, you know, like um, for me, just hearing about um, racism as habit was just, just super, super helpful. Um, how does sort of institutional racism come into that then?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think oftentimes in anti-racist discourse, we can have too stark a divide between the personal and the institutional or the personal and the structural. Some people who work, on institutional racism say, so, you know, we're sort of too misguided if we think of racism as a, as a individual problem or, or something that happens on the level of interpersonal relations. And I think the way I see it is I think habit sort of bridges the two because I think it is true that racism unfolds through our personal, interpersonal relations, but that's not to say that it's individual because these habits are developed um, through the institutions and the structures that we have around us and they continue to be in place because we embody them and we, we perform them and we enact them. So I, I think there's a much more um, reciprocal relationship between the two and um, I guess this is where I see Habit as potentially doing some of that in-between work.
0: I want to ask you about embodiment and feminist philosophy, and I'm interested in in how this relates to the transition to parenthood and maybe your own experiences.
1: Yeah, so I think some of the important contributions that have been made by feminist philosophy start by looking at the experience of um, women in a patriarchal society, and that can happen through many ways so for example there are some feminist philosophers who take up the experience of pregnancy and birth and parenting and working from the bodily experience of those events really challenge the way we think about ourselves as humans and who we are and, and how we relate to one another so for example um, there are feminist philosophers who have done some important work on pregnant embodiment and thinking about how pregnancy is really it's one example where you you have this kind of fusion of the self and other. For example, a fetus growing inside a, a person who is pregnant, who sometimes can you know undergo so many bodily changes, experiences the movements of the fetus, their bodily boundaries, etc., being blurred, in the way that it really challenges this very dominant orthodoxy of persons as individual, as separated from
0: one another, and uses that as a way to think about how deeply relational we are. Do you do you have any reflections on habit in birthing spaces and contexts, or in how habit-based critiques have informed your experiences of birthing and in its institutions? I know that a lot of your work, for
1: example, looks at how birthing spaces cater for certain people of certain bodies and not people of other bodies, and I think that's an example of where some people um, most often white, cisgendered, able bodies, experiences of birth and the environment is one where their body doesn't, it's not called into question or their body doesn't become A problem. So they can interact with medical professionals with a sense of ease. They can can interact with medical professionals, for example, with a sense of ease or without um, the sense of being interrupted by one's body. You can look at um, birthing literature or advice and always see your image reflected and feel very much at home or feel very much at ease in these spaces. Whereas I think that there are some people for whom that's not true, whether that's because they very seldom see their image in material that's that's there to help support um, birthing people and so have to project themselves into it or they are working with um, professionals who don't know how to cater for their bodies. And so the body itself, even though if we want to talk about in the example of birthing, um, you know, the, the body is preparing itself to birth or is tasked with birthing and yet is kind of confronted with or juggling all these other additional things that aren't problems for some people but are problems for people whose bodies are non-normative.
0: Uh, as a very specific embodied experience, which you are Mm. living in right this second, (laughs) literally, um, has birthing or parenting offered you new kind of philosophical avenues for insight and knowledge? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think so. So I I think, you know, the experience of
1: pregnancy, but also the experience of parenting, especially the newborn phase, it it does... um, It's such a rich and fertile sort of period for philosophical reflection, but you're so exhausted that you can't can't quite um, (laughs) be too exhausted to think philosophically in that period uh, at the same time. Um, But it does, I think, especially the experience of um, your your body and the the changes that it goes through during um, pregnancy, but also in the postnatal period, um, you know, our bodies are so leaky. Our bodies are so, um, there's such a blurriness to it, especially for a newborn, the blurriness between your body and your, your baby's body. And they're so codependent. And I think that really, for me, just, um, brings home this very fundamental relationality that we have, that we're so, um, enmeshed in, in one another. And philosophically, that it's, it's just a really profound and simple fact that we are all Birth by another person. Um, I remember in one of my philosophy classes when we were thinking about life and death and how philosophy tends to have this necrophilic tendency. We always like to think about death. We think philosophy is about thinking about you know the, the meaning of death, etc. And I remember one of my professors saying, well, "It's interesting, isn't it? Interesting thing about how death can be technically, it, theoretically, death can be a solitary event. You can die alone. That's possible." You cannot be birthed alone. And I think there's something really fundamental in that. There's just a, such a fundamental relationality in that, that we are related to one another. But I think maybe through thinking about this in tandem with the work on language as well, it's not just that we're related to one another, it's that that relationship changes you as well. Um, so it's not just the fact of relationality, but that that makes you a different person or it makes you a different kind of person.
0: Helen, thanks so much for sharing your thinking with us. As someone who's interested in racism and how it's felt in the body, I'm personally really struck by your work. The point you make about how the racialized body is habitually not at ease and not at home makes a lot of sense when I think about my own research with migrant mothers and how pre or postnatal care excludes some parents. So, you've given me a lot to think about as far as how language and birth intersect. You can find more episodes, transcripts and links at ruthdessousa.com slash podcast. I'll add links to more of Helen's work there too. If you enjoyed listening this week, I'd be thrilled if you could leave a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Next time on Birthing and Justice. One of the reasons that pregnancy and childbirth are such significant life milestones is that they are hugely social life milestones. They're life milestones that require other people to participate in them. They bring you into interface with people and communities and families and services in a totally different public way. And to do this now in a global public health emergency, even in my position of enormous privilege, I have felt a loss around what it has meant to do so much of this alone. I'll be joined by Eleanor Jackson, a Filipino-Australian poet, performer, arts producer, and community radio broadcaster. Birthing and Justice with Dr. Ruth D'Souza is written and hosted by me and recorded at my home on the traditional lands of the Bunwurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nations. Sound design and mix by John Cheer, artwork by Atong Atom, designed by Ethan Sang, theme music by Raquel Solia, and produced and edited by John Cheer. This podcast is supported by funding from the RMIT University Vice Chancellor's Fellowship Program. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon.